Hi, this is Exact Change with Roberto and Claire. And we are back. We are um, thinking about ways to continue the podcast and um, kind of stay within the scope of our platform um, while also shifting our content a bit to give more space to the Black Lives Matter movement and ongoing developments with defunding the police nationally and um, also paying attention to race in the literary world and publishing world um, as it pertains to our content. Um, Which means some shifts in the way that we have organized the show so far. Um, we've been talking a lot about giving our listeners some potential places to offer money, um, which is just one step in doing the work of participating in this larger movement of making sure that we are protecting, supporting, um, and amplifying Black lives and voices, and using our platform in, in solidarity with this sort of moment and, and movement, which we're both very passionate about as people, writers, um, and uh, I mean, I don't really consider myself an activist, but uh, you know. Yeah. Who really? We do what we really can. can. We do what we can. We're, which is why we kind of had to take a a week hiatus to regroup and talk. Yeah, yeah, and um, we're going to also like make an effort to highlight and include contemporary Black voices and authors um, when we can and and media as well. And um, yeah, like as we move forward, we also are now and continually open for feedback and um yeah we're just gonna like see how it goes to to continue um so if there are any suggestions please feel free to reach out to us our dms on instagram are open neither of us has (laughs) been active we've been active on our own pages um and the the instagram has kind of fallen to the wayside for a little yeah. bit, but we'll yeah. make some efforts to to Definitely. pick it up. Yeah, give it a little more, let it be a little more vocal and also um, have it echo some of these like shifts in priority that we're, um, that we're making in our podcast. So um, today we chose two Uh, organizations that came to our attention and um, we thought we'd say a little bit about those and then uh, today we have an interview with poet Stella Corso who is based in Denver and 
that is pretty much going to be our episode for today. And then moving forward, eventually we'll be reviewing books again and talking about um, uh, shows and, and doing more interviews coming up. So yeah, that all reveal? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think I'll, I'll start um, with my shout out to an organization to donate to, and this organization is Dark Muse Performing Arts. They are uh, an organization based in Minneapolis and founded by uh, Black women. And they are a platform dedicated to creating and sharing stories, the stories of and experiences of Black women, especially. And, and the, it is a really new organization that came out um, specifically out of the need um, made by these these times, these with the the protests and the on ongoing pervasive violence um, against Black people. They can be found at darkmusearts.squarespace.com, which will be linked in our uh episode notes and you can venmo them at dark muse arts again that is at dark muse arts <laughs> and as of recently i know that they were raising money to buy tents uh for a performance um at a protest coming up this week uh and as far as i know some of the the art forms that they serve include theater, music, dance, poetry, spoken word, drag, burlesque, comedy, etc. Cool. Thanks, Roberto. Um, the other organization this week is called the Black School, and it is a New York-based education program that is um, that moves, it uh, partners with middle schools and high schools and youth organizations and will go to those locations um, to teach their curriculum. And the Black Schools mission, taking some language from their website, is to promote and extend the legacy of art in Black radical histories by providing innovative education alternatives centered in Black love. Uh, they have workshops, community events, they have a student-staffed art and design studio, um, and they say we use art to transform social realities while celebrating Black people's history and the beauty and ingenuity of our ever-evolving culture. Um, their Venmo is at the Black School, and their website um, is theblack.school. Um, let me make sure that's correct. I, I realized I was at like a different, yeah, theblack.school slash home um, is their homepage. And again, we'll link to that as well as their Instagram. Um, but in the show notes. In the show <laughs> notes, yeah. So 
that's what we've got for today there will be some others next week and um here's stella here's stella all right so today we're joined by stella corso um stella corso is a writer and performer living in denver she has a book on rescue press called tantrum her work can also be found in Fanzine, Jubilat, Sprung Formal, and Forklift Ohio. She is currently in the PhD program for creative writing at University of Denver. Um, and I met Stella a few years back when she was bartending in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Um, yeah, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, thanks for having me. Um, it's nice to zoom in a different context outside of black <laughs> zoom. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, we thought today, this week, we would start by just asking you um, what the protests have been like in Denver, what you've seen of them or participated in um, as someone who's relatively new to the city um yeah if there's anything you'd like to share about it yeah i mean i was down there the first weekend every day and mostly in the daytime and it was really peaceful and well organized and um i went once at night when things were a little surreal and i definitely witnessed it's so many young kids it's it's the zoomers that are gonna like save us i really i really believe um, and it was so amazing to see all these young people out. And the police were being violent. They were the instigators. And um, it's really, it's a while of time. So, and the protests have not let up, but you know, I've been in all this week trying to finish class and then just, you know, trying to get involved in other ways. So donating to the bail funds and, and offering myself as sort of an emergency contact if someone needs a ride. Um, but it's amazing that it's, it's every city and it's, it's not stopping. It's still going strong. And in some ways, you know, I think it's the, the perfect storm for it because of the pandemic enough people are uncomfortable. Um, because I, you know, I was saying the other day, why, why wasn't it this big? Like, you know, when Ferguson happened and I think part of it is, this happening alongside the pandemic and also all of the amazing organizing that Black Lives Matters has done since 2014, um, which is really important to remember. So it's that combination, I think, of you know, people being uncomfortable and, and also needing to socialize and um, all that organization that has brought us to this moment. And it's like, it, it feels so amazing in some way. And I feel like real change is, is happening because of it and will happen. And also it's just horrifying that, you know, so many people have, have had to, to die to get to this point. Um, so it's a very, yeah, it's a strange time. Um, and yeah, it makes me, rethink Denver because you know when I first got here I was like oh I don't know about this city you know it, it's 
it doesn't feel like there's that much diversity and it's kind of a strange city to read. Um, but now seeing everyone out every night, uh, it feels pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Can you talk about, um, I mean, the, so the peaceful protest and the day versus the, and the nighttime is sort of when the anger escalates. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just constant tear gas and pepper spray in the air. Um, you know, at one point I was on the lawn in front of the Capitol and, you know, the SWAT team charged down the stairs with their guns, I guess, rubber bullet guns, either way, it's like, it's, um, and, but people weren't being violent, you know, there was really no need to control the crowd in that way. Um, I mean, they were building barricades and, and that was like kind of the most disruptive thing that anyone was doing. Um, right. And it's surreal to see, I guess, all of, you know, the downtown boarded up, um, and defaced, I, I think that it's amazing. <laughs> um, and, and, and actually a lot of the businesses were, were driving that. They were boarding up their own businesses and defacing them because they were there for that. Um, so that, yeah, it felt surreal because I'd never seen I've just never seen that much uprising at once in every city where people yeah. are down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I guess, like, transitioning maybe to the, the content of your work, um, I think we were both kind of talking about something we really admired in your poems was um, this sense of uh, anger and, and rage, but also in a presented in a tongue-in-cheek, um, playful way. And um, I mean, I don't know. I think there. I think people often expect poetry to be sort of tender mm. and and frilly and um, but your work is doing something different. Can you talk about your approach and how you kind of discovered that that voice that your speakers kind of talk in? Yeah, it's interesting because I looking like in some ways the book feels very far away from me now um and i was looking at it the other day and i was like oh yeah there's so much anger and desire at the same time and maybe anger at unfulfilled desire and you know tantrum actually the name i, I had played with a bunch of titles um and this was sort of last minute but what i loved about it i, I wanted to sort of reclaim the word <laughs> Um, because it's actually quite beautiful and, and it sounds a lot like like tantric and so I think you know there's and and there, and it sort of sounds like an incantation and so somehow that word for me encapsulated the, the anger and the desire um, and, and a kind of ritual and you know a lot of this my perspective has changed because I wrote this when I you know 
identified as a straight woman and my experience to my sexuality and and all that has changed since but then I actually I look at the collection I just finished or I just finished a book length poem and it still has anger and desire so so maybe that has nothing to do with you know how you identify or who you love um but I do think in this book it's it's definitely self-conscious about being performative and it's also really conscious of being read as an object or just being read and and the newest uh, book I just finished is kind of flipping that where I'm really um, reading the world around me and and taking more of a um, becoming more of the subject and and I didn't actually do any of that consciously right um, which is why it's amazing to go back and read yourself and be like what was I doing <laughs> like what was I thinking and how has that changed um, that's interesting what you said about the object, because I feel like there um, is an attention both to the body as an object in tantrum, but also to clothing and food and kind of like the object environment of the narrators. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to see like what that recentering looks like in your new work. Um, we suggested a few poems from Tantrum um, for you to read if you'd like to read one of those or um, also feel free to read something else if there's something else that feels closer to you right now. Well, I think it's just so interesting to, to see the um, grouping that you chose because one of them is the oldest poem in the book and one mm -hmm. One is one of the newer, one of the last ones to go in, and also what became the germ, actually, of the, the newest uh, book, which is, so that one's the reduced versions of popular women for the private market, um, where, you know, the narrator is consciously reading, uh, in this case, the museum and the artwork in the museum. Um, and then sort of reflecting on how I guess she sees herself relating to or in those works or outside of them. And then variations on celluloid is, is like probably the oldest, probably one of the oldest poems I've ever written actually. So that's really cool to see that you picked those two. And then yeah, City Limits is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so yeah, I'm happy to start with whatever one Maybe start with the oldest one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm curious why, are you gonna tell me why you picked these poems? <laughs> um, it, uh, good question. Roberto and I were like texting and both looking through your book at the same time. Um, and also kind of noting the three sections Mm -hmm. um I think we ended up picking one from each but it wasn't super mm -hmm. conscious it was just like oh I noticed this one I noticed this one I don't know if Roberto you have any I personally other. um I mean they each really have a different tone and mood to me um I mean for I particularly like the um the one about the 
the museum women um, because uh, I mean Claire and I both just read this novel um, uh, in Delicacy by Amina Kane and it's all about this woman who sort of works at a a museum for a long time and and wants to be a writer and starts writing by writing about art um, so I think that I, I think the acrostic mode is really interesting but also subverting it to show the ways that women are women's bodies are fragmented and are um objectified in that way and commodified mm -hmm. uh so i thought that your treatment of your your looking at men looking at women to like reference that book by like whatever her siri who's but um is something that i was i was thinking about when i read that poem and it really um hit home for me that's amazing i have to read this book i can't believe i haven't read it indelicacies yeah and delicacy by amina kane we are going to review it at some point but we oh. haven't gotten around to it yet <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the book we should review next so. yeah good idea <laughs> awesome yeah so i'll start with variations on celluloid the, the oldest poem <laughs> Any is a good occasion to linger in the red light seat, overstuffed officials mapping faces of early giants, estate angels with fresh limes, less like an orange peel. Subtle, but with such spirit, I always leave something on my plate, she says, even if it's just a bite. Yeah, it's weird to reread old poems. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I'm even slipping into the cadence in the way that, you know, I originally intended to. But yeah, I think that was like, if it's one of the first poems I wrote, which is over 10 years ago, right? I guess at that point, I was still in the like sensual language play uh, over meaning, I guess, mm. uh, mode. Like, you know, the first, one of the first poets I loved was E. Cummings, right? And um, also Gregory Corso, who I'm not related to, at least I've never been able to prove <laughs> and and Edna Edna Simmons and Malay, which are two or three very different poets, but I think those were some of like the first poets I really loved. And so yeah, I think that must have been influencing what, what I was doing here. And then later, yeah, the newer poems get a little more formal and, and critical in a different way. We were curious about the process of ordering um, the poems in the book um, in the three sections, but also uh, now hearing you talk about how some of them were quite a bit older than others. Um, how did you kind of come to gather them and then decide how to put them together? Yeah, I think at first I had 
so the middle section is like visually the most different or probably overall the most different and i originally had those kind of peppered through um and yeah some of them are are, are old and then i did add to them um which in some ways is hard right like it's hard to pick up on a thread that you start a while ago um but somehow i felt like i did a little world building with this um section and i almost thought i could get rid of the titles and make it one long poem um but yeah so i felt that that needed to be separate and then the last section i think has some of the newer the newest poems the ones that went in at the end and actually helped me really i think finally frame the collection in a way that made sense um, And will you maybe read um, the reduced women? Yeah. Reduced versions of popular women for the private market. Peasant women gathering fruit in poses recalling ancient sculpture. A woman after having spent centuries underwater, holes in her belly and below her hem, where pins would have attached her to the ship. Portrait of Mabel Little Billings, unhappy with her hat. A woman alone in the middle of a dark room, so much attention has been given to the details of her tattered dress. Jean Arp wrote that torso represents the realization of a basic shape of the female torso. A woman contorted, further reduced, a realization representing fertility, submission, a maiming. Torso of a pensive woman by Wilhelm Lembrook standing headless and without arms, wistfully recalling her wholeness in the next room, a woman gazing pensively at the castle in the distance while a man reads to her. Although the cracks in the sky are unintentional, they lend a necessary texture. Yeah, I do think this whole last section in a way is a reevaluation of the first, particularly the first section. Um, and so I think having that time, you know, like the, the one good thing about having a collection of multiple poems that you write over, over a while is that you can reflect and change direction in the same, in the same book. And so I think there is, um, the narrator in the last, last section does feel a little more grown up and a little more, um, more cynical maybe, or <laughs> I think a little less willing to play along in the, in the performance of being the object, uh, which does give her some pleasure, right, in the, in the first part. What did, um, what was the time span like of writing the poems, like in years wise or 
um, and also like the time in your life and what you were doing? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first ones um, from the middle section, I think there's two of them that I think I wrote in like one of my first poetry classes that I took at Gotham Writers in New York City. So I was living in New York City and um, I had gone to school for fashion design as an undergraduate. And I did that for a couple years and I thought this is the most horrifying industry. I cannot work for, for this industry, um, which just abuses you know people and, and animals and the environment. And so I kind of realized all at once that actually I wanted to write, I wanted to be a poet, I wanted to go to grad school. And I like quit my job one day, got a job at a restaurant and, and made this like really quick plan to just take poetry classes at Gotham and like, you know, have a portfolio and, and start applying to grad school. And also kind of wanting to get out of New York City, which I keep going back to and then wanting to get out of again. And that <laughs> just keeps happening. Um, so, so yeah, that was over, 10 years ago that I wrote those first couple poems and started taking classes. And then I wrote most of the first section in grad school. So at, at uh, UMass Amherst, I was there from 2010 to 2014. And then I think most of the last section I wrote after I'd graduated, but was still living in, in the Valley in Western Massachusetts. Um, and I think, yeah, an important backdrop is that I was working at a bar and that I had my own shop and I was teaching, you know, I had all these different jobs. And so I had, um, a really, I think I was thinking a lot about transaction, transactional relationships, right? I was always selling something and then, and not wanting to be right. Like, um, and so I think that kind of shows up a lot in here. Yeah, I think it's interesting in the ways that the poems are constantly addressing someone, um, like especially men, I think. Yeah. And in a sort of like a jab at their egos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was having some pretty interesting relationships <laughs> during this time. Um, yeah, one pretty significant one that I think definitely colors this. But yeah, a lot of it too was so like sitting in the shop that I had on Main Street in Greenfield all day, you know, and it was like a fishbowl and I could see what everyone else was doing. Um, and I think that's why like, you know, the, there's a lot about cars, right? Cause I was just watching people drive by all day. And so you start to, oh my God, Roberta, there's two of you. <laughs> <laughs> I just noticed. Um, I Zoom double. I think I should have left one because I kept getting disconnected on my computer. Oh no. <laughs> it's like weird enough to see yourself on Zoom, right? To be in a room with yourself. And then when you double. <laughs> it's Gemini season. <laughs> Oh, but so I really was like knowing, I was really starting to know people by their cars. Like I knew people's license plates, which sounds really creepy, but like I'm just sitting there all day in my shop and like that's, you know, <laughs> my the way of engaging with the world. Unless people come in, 
and you know either want to have some kind of exchange with me so either they want to buy something or a lot of times people just wanted to come in and talk and that was cool too um but I did yeah like I I, I met a, a lover I guess from having come in the shop and then you know driving by all the time and so that was sort of always happening uh you know in the background during that time um or around that time i know you have a background in theater and performance and we're doing some collaborations um with patty gone among others and i wonder if um that type of collaboration or if performance has continued to be part of your work um yeah i'm i'm i haven't gotten to do much performance since i've moved to denver and even when i moved back to new york for a year and a half um i wasn't really able to but yeah i'm thinking about i'm wondering now so I started uh, Connecticut River Valley Poets Theater with a group of people in, what was that, like 20, oh my God, that might've been like 2012, 2013. So I guess in some ways I was involved in these group um, performances, which were like ensemble theater and, and video work while I was writing. Um, so I hadn't really thought about how that might might have influenced it but um yeah I guess in some ways I I feel like if I can perform in my writing then that's enough and then in other ways I miss a more embodied um performance especially in a collaborative way so I think that's one thing that I was just trying to start to navigate in Denver before like the pandemic and the shutdown was you know what are people doing as far as like embodied performance here and I think there is something going on there you know there's definitely some stuff going on but um yeah yeah I'm thinking about how to work that into my studies now too mm -hmm. and if you I'm going to be doing the um I'm going to be editing the performance section we now have a performance section in Denver quarterly so if you all are doing any performative writing and I think that's sort of a loose term send it in <laughs> that's my pitch <laughs> but I I'm really I love so when I first started writing I didn't know any writers and when I was in New York I knew mostly dancers or I don't even know if that's the right word but people that were doing movement and performance and so that those were the readers of my work um, and that was the work that I was reading. And I think in some ways, those two disciplines are, are really um, complementary and, and similar in ways. And some of those performers I've noticed over the years. So do you know the choreographer, um, Jen Rosenblatt? No. Or uh, Mariana Valencia? They're two older friends of mine and they, I've noticed have incorporated more texts um, into their, to their dance performances or their movement performances. Um, 
So I think that work is really excited, exciting. I want to know more about people doing that. And I'm a little, I think, shy when it comes to like performing, even though I've done it. I, I guess I'm not afraid to embarrass myself. So that's the reason I, I do perform. But um, it, it's in some ways it comes naturally. And in other ways, I become really self-conscious of, of, you know, performing off the page. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, maybe for our listeners who are maybe experiencing a lot of rage right now? And um, I mean, I think you're, what you're doing is, um, kind of channeling it, channeling your anger and frustration um, with some, with a lot of humor and, and doing that in a way that isn't just sort of this sort of calling out or cussing out your own, your, your aggressors or the aggressive inner demons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that is, uh, I think it's totally fine to do that as well. Um, and I'm, I think, um, yeah, I'm trying to think if my newer work is less playful or less humorous. I think in some ways I, I can't help but, but have humor in my work. Um, it's definitely, I enjoy reading something that's both humorous and and devastating and and angry and dark and all of those things um it's kind of just always is is the mode that comes kind of naturally to me um but i you know there are certainly other ways to channel anger which yeah i don't know sometimes i think I've worried that actually humor takes away from the mm. severity or the seriousness of the anger, or the charge. Um, but I guess I go back and forth about that, you know, in some ways I think we need that release or, or it's helpful. Um, sometimes I wonder, I think my therapist once told me that like maybe I hide behind humor, right? And that can be a thing. Um, so I don't know, because in a way, I'm always surprised when I read my own work at, at the anger <laughs> and in some, yeah, like sometimes, and sometimes I forget even that things are funny. Like I, I go back and forth <laughs> and be like, oh, wow, I was so angry. Oh, oh, that's funny. Like I forgot, <laughs> um, or something happened recently in a workshop where people were laughing and I was like, oh wait, this is funny. Like it, it's almost like, and it is, what I wrote was funny or it had humorous elements, but it's almost maybe become so much of just the voice I write in that I forget. And I'm like, wait, this is, are you sure this is funny? Is this supposed to be funny? Like, should you be laughing at me? But, <laughs> but uh, I think it can be, I think humor is really powerful. Um, and there is a way I think to be 
angry and vulnerable and playful at the same time. I think play mm -hmm. is play is so important. Um, as, you know, as a release, and then as a way, I think to to get to new places. Um, like as a really potent way into the imagination that can hold a space for the anger, right? And not be just like obliterated by it. What are you working on at the moment? Um, I think you said you just finished something, but I'm sure also working on projects right now. Yeah, I just finished, I guess probably around the time Tantrum came out, I started working on what became a book-length poem. Um, and yeah, it has to do with sort of, again, like reading the world, like reading art in institutions, but also reading, uh, seeing art where it's not like, that's not supposed to be art. So um, kind of like taking on the the wandering masculine subjectivity of the flaneur. Um, and yeah, that has to do with sort of being in the city and leaving the city and going back. And then also um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say too much about it yet. It's still looking for a home. Um, but now I'm thinking actually to go, I really want to write prose next, which I also say, like, maybe I shouldn't say that because what if I can't do it? <laughs> but I really, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking of, of writing this novel because I think for me, poetry is such a space for subjectivity. And, and if I'm thinking about uh, writing for the social, I think the novel is still a really um, particular space for that, that I, that I want to, that I want to try to, to work in. And then in my like critical work, I've been thinking a lot about the flaneur and also manifesto writing, the genre of manifesto, mm -hmm. and how I think both of these modes are really important right now, especially. So the flaneur is like really into this sort of digressive writing and is sort of always on the periphery. And it's like kind of a, a really slow, subjective way of reading the world. And then the manifesto is so urgent, right? And I think there is this um, important way as readers and scholars um, to, to read the world urgently and to um, really be specific about what our politics are and what our ideologies are and how that corresponds to our aesthetics. And I guess some, in some way, that's kind of like the, the mission statement and the artist statement, right? We see all these businesses this week having to make a statement about where they stand with Black Lives Matters. And that's really important, right? Um, like how is, how is their business or their aesthetic or their projects um, upholding their ideologies and values? So I think that urgency of the manifesto 
combine with this sort of slow, reflective reading of the world. To those two modes together, I think are really important. So that's what I've been working on critically, which will hopefully, I guess, also somehow manifest themselves in the novel that is still just in my brain and not on paper yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to end with like another poem or a snippet of work. Yeah, did you still want City Limits or? I feel like Dealer's Choice <laughs> for the last one. <laughs> okay. I think I'll read Thank God the Stars. Thank God the Stars are behind me tonight, for I am angry, angry, but I am laughing also, because it is nice to be admired, but better to be loved. And I am never both, such an unlikely combination. That is luck reserved for stars alone. So we put them up on the screen so that we may cut them down. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Stella. Thanks for having me. That's been our episode. <laughs> yeah, that's all for this week. We'll have more for you all next week. Um, thanks for bearing with us in our process. And a thank you to Nat Harvey, who made our wonderful theme music. And Sue Han, the artist behind our content art.